Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest this week is Jason Flom, talent signer, developer, maker, extraordinaire, legendary philanthropist. Good to have you here, Jason. I'm thrilled to be here, Bob. You know, it's nice to see the uh, the letter that I've read for these decades or eons, whatever it's been, you know, come to life. So your father was a legendary New York lawyer. Did you know that growing up? Well, he wasn't when I was little, right? He became, and it wasn't... Well, I okay, actually... I mean, I just know, for those who don't know, there's a huge section on Jason's father in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, that tells a lot of his story. Now, he ultimately got into uh, mergers and ac- uh, acquisitions and other things. So when you're growing up, what was the status of his career? Right, so this, the chapter about my dad in Outliers is called The Three Lessons of Joe Flom. And I can talk about him. We spend the whole podcast talking about him because he was my hero and uh, my role model and everything and my mentor, et cetera, so, or my most important mentor. But the amazing thing about my dad is that he was the son of immigrants who spoke no English. They spoke Yiddish. He grew up so poor that in Brooklyn in those days, you could your first month's rent was free if you would move into an apartment. So they would move every month. For a period of years, apparently, they moved every month. Just my dad and his sister Flo and their parents. And yeah, my sister's name was Flo Flom, which is right. kind of funny, but it's true. Right. So anyway, um, so yeah, he went to City College at night. What, what did the father do for a living? He was a labor organizer, but he was unemployed most of the time. And I think his mother was like an unemployed seamstress or something. Okay. Um, so, uh, so my dad went to City College at night, but he didn't graduate because World War II broke out, so he went to the Army. And when he got out of the Army, he wrote a letter to Harvard Law School, and he said, I don't have any money, and I don't have a college degree, but I'm the best thing since sliced bread. And if you let me in, you won't regret it. And they gave him a full scholarship. And then he went on to become, of course, you know, some people say the greatest lawyer of the 20th century, certainly the greatest corporate lawyer of the 20th century by anybody's estimation. So you're growing up, what's the status of his career? So the first time I realized that he was, you know, sort of a big muckety-muck was when the New York Times, we used to get the New York Times delivered, I still do. I like the actual paper. I read the paper too, it's stunning. When you read it online, you miss certain stuff. So my dad showed up on the front page of the New York Times. And I saw his picture on it. So he didn't tell you he was going to be there. He just picked up the paper. And I'm not like, sure if he knew. Because you know, it wasn't a picture of him. It was a picture of him, you know, with doing something. Right, I don't remember okay. what the hell he was doing. I was right, 12. Right, right. But um, I remember saying to him that day, I go, Dad, are, I don't know why this occurred to me. I was like, Dad, are we rich? <laughs> and he was like, no, I don't know what you mean, whatever. Because, you know, I mean, we lived nicely, but it wasn't like limos and, you know, we flew coach. And it wasn't like, you know, I mean, I'm not... Listen, I know I'm privileged. I know I was born well, – the spoon wasn't silver yet, but it turned silver while I was growing up. And I was a child of private schools and et cetera. But um, the – you know, I had less allowance than my friends and things like that. So I think my parents were pretty careful to keep – and my dad told my brother and I that he was going to give all his money to charity. So he's like, whatever I make is going away, so you guys better go make your own. And are you the older brother or the younger brother? I'm the younger brother. And what, where's your older brother today? My older brother's a great story because my older brother was born uh, almost two and a half months early and almost didn't survive. They didn't know how to deal with that so well back then. And he uh, famously, the doctor came out and said you know, to my mother, your son's going to live, but he's never going to go to college or anything like that. And so he had severe learning disabilities and physical problems and coordination problems. And uh, so when it came time for him to go to school, there were no schools for kids like him because he wasn't technically in any of the categories. He wasn't so messed up that he could go to the school for what they used to call retarded kids back then, right? But we right. no longer call them that. But uh, And he couldn't go to regular school. So my mom, who had no background in education, started a school. 
um, called the Gateway School. And my brother was the first student, and now he's got his PhD in psychometrics. And so the school is still the best school of its kind. Uh, well, what is psychometrics? City. It's the psychology of statistics. Aha. Uh-huh. So basically, he's fine. He's fine, yeah. He's fine. I mean, he had a very difficult childhood because it was different than other kids. And it was uh, something that's really uh, still bothers me to this day, the fact that he was picked on and, and was bullied. Um, and, um, and there was nothing I could do about it. No, but there are a lot of people who grew up in that situation, and it affects the family because and affects them because all the attention is paid to the child with difficulty. Do you feel that growing up? No, not at all. I didn't feel that way. Um, you know, there was, um, you know, my family was odd. I mean, my dad was at the office almost all the time, you know, because he was building his, you know, his right. legacy. And, um, and I thought that was normal. And my mom was a lovely woman, but she didn't know how to show love. She had no idea. Like, there was, and I didn't even realize it until she was gone. And my sister, um, who's not around anymore, but my sister, my half sister told me that my mom had never, you know, hugged us or played with us or read us a story or even touched us or never said, I love you. Like, she couldn't do it. Even if I would say it to her, she couldn't say it back. Well, we didn't say it, and my mother didn't say it. You know, on some level, it's children of that era, although my mother, I think, probably shouldn't have had children, would have been a career woman in a different era. And as a result, it messes you up as an adult because you don't know how to say those things. But I didn't know what I was missing. You knew what you were missing. No, I didn't know it either. I had no idea. I thought it was just normal. It, it didn't occur to me until, um, until, well, until my sister told me, which was probably 10 years ago. And then I've learned in uh, various forms of therapy what that meant. And so, Okay, um, just, yeah. just to get the story straight so I understand, your half-sister is your mother was married before she was married to your father. My mother was married to one of the guys who cracked the Japanese code in World War II. Um, and then they were divorced, which was not a common thing. No, back then. very uncommon. And then she became a decorator, and my dad, who was penniless, was in uh, had gotten a job as an associate in a law firm that had no clients um, called Skadden Arp Slate Mar. It eventually became Skadden Arp Slate Mar and Flom. Right. Now it's known as Skadden. Um, and so they had four partners and one associate and no clients. Actually, his first client was a guy named Kutsi Begdesh, but that's a different story. But he was in a horrendous uh, car accident. He was, in, he was a passenger in a taxi at a stoplight, and the, uh, an off-duty cop plowed into uh, – it was drunk or fell asleep – plowed into the taxi. The driver was killed. My dad ended up in the hospital for quite some time. And when he got his insurance check, he decided to decorate his apartment, and he hired my mother, and that's why I'm here. Wow. Okay, so you grow up in that family, even though your father's not around that much because he's working. Is there a lot of pressure to do well in school? So my dad said to me, do whatever you want to do. Try to be the best at it, but just make the world a better place. He says, that's the meaning of success. And I wanted to be a success in his eyes. And so that stuck with me to this day. And I say it when I give my speeches. I I quote him on that because I think it's a really powerful quote. I've told my kids that. Of course, he told my brother as well. And I've tried to live up to that. Um, So the pressure really was, um, no, there wasn't that much pressure in terms of that. I mean, I was the best student in school until eighth grade. You know, bear in mind, my dad was a legitimate genius. Right. And my mom graduated Cornell when she was 18. So she's, well, that's a crazy story. She graduated Cornell, then she got married and divorced. It's like she was thirty years ahead of herself. Yeah, she was. Um, she was an interesting woman, my mom. So obviously, very, very, you know, very smart. And so um, the genes were great. But uh, so what happened in eighth grade? In eighth grade, a friend of mine said to me, um, "Hey, um, uh, you know, I want to come by the house today." I said, "Great." He goes, "You want me to bring some reefer?" I was like. Uh, I had no idea what that was, but I didn't want to admit that I didn't know what it right. was. So I was like, okay. So he brought it over. He brought some reefer, which we used to call it. And uh, we smoked 
whatever, some joints or something. And I remember we were listening to The Who and the record was warped, right? And it was like, I still, it's weird that I remember that all these years later. But so uh, I found, you know, it was around this time. It took a little while longer than that. But it was around ninth or 10th grade that I found out I wasn't, I was almost good enough to make the sports teams, right? I was like the last what guy What school cut. did you go to? I went to Fieldston. Okay. So I was like, you know, I, I have very quick hands and slow feet, but slow feet are no good in team sports, right? No. You can't you can't make the soccer team, you can't make the football team, you can't make the basketball team, because if you're slow, you usually can't jump. So I was like, well, this sucks. I can, I'm a monster ping pong player, you know, <laughs> like I can I can fuck people up at sports where you don't need to run. You know, I'm very good snowboarder, as you know. But anyway, so um, but yeah, I can't run. So I couldn't make the sports teams. So I decided I would play guitar and smoke weed. And so then my grades took a percent. And then I found gambling. And then things Okay, well, really let's break this down a little bit. You find these things, your grades go downhill. You're going to Fieldston. Does anybody raise their hand and say, hey, we've seen a dramatic change in Jason? Or do your parents freak out? I think it was eighth or ninth grade. I was in the, they divided the math class. I think they still do this. So they divided the kids up in the math classes right. from the smartest to the right. least smart. I'm going to be publicly <laughs> correct, right? So there were six math classes because there's about 120 kids in the grade. And I was in the top class. And I was the only one, the first day of class, the teacher's name was Mr. Spooner. Mr. Spooner gave us a test. He didn't even say hello. He was not a very nice man. Um, you know, he was one of these guys, I don't care if the door was locked, you're still late. You know what right, I mean? Right, right, right. Like he was that guy. So he gave us a test the first day of school. I was the only one that got 40 out of 40 right, except for Tracy Bernstein on the makeup test. And I'm still pissed at her about that. But anyway. Where's but Tracy I, Bernstein Yeah, today? where is she today? Whatever. So if I was the only one. And there were kids in that class that ended up getting full scholarships to Harvard Medical School. One kid, Paul Quintus, actually went to work for NASA, and he didn't get 40 right. So I was, I was the smartest kid in the smartest class in a very good school. And by the end of the school year, I was getting five out of 40 right or seven. I mean, I was the worst kid in the class, and nobody fucking noticed it. And I smelled like weed all the time. I mean, I was No smoking. one noticed it? I thought that's why you send your kids to private school. Back then, it was a little different. No, you could, no one could get away. And it's funny, you know, James Diener went to the school that, that I went to. About, he's about 10 years younger than me. And he said they were still talking about my, my, mis, my misdeeds because <laughs> I was such a druggie. I was a mess. So how did you get into playing the guitar? My mom bought me a guitar. I guess I asked her to when I was about uh, that age, like 13. I remember going to the to take lessons. I uh, had to play first like Feeling Groovy and then ultimately like Honky Tonk Women. And then the next thing was, uh, I think for my 15th birthday, she bought me an SG Standard. And then I started a band and I played in the band. I wrote songs and, you know, and it, it went very well with the weed and the whole lifestyle. You okay. To... Was this a dream? Like you were going to make it or were you just hanging out? Oh, no, no. I was going to make it. I was 100% going to make it. I had this, I had my eyes on the prize and, you know, and, and that and that leads into the story, you know, what happened after the end of high school, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not go there for a second. You're playing in the band. How much are you working? How much are you rehearsing? Uh, we're rehearsing a lot and gigging very little, you know? It's usually the paradigm. Yeah. And, and were you more into it than everybody else? Yeah, probably. I mean, they, we we rehearsed a lot. My the other guitar player uh, was a guy named Jeff Burston. He was the adopted son of Ellen Burston, and we used to rehearse at her home in Rockland County, which was a trip. How'd she, you get there? Used to take a somebody had a car and whatever. Okay. You know, it's, I mean, that's, so you know, we it was, but they had a whole setup there. We rehearsed there. We would even rehearse like sometimes when my parents would go away. Um, we had <laughs> we had a we had a housekeeper. Her name was Carmen. We used to call her the Black Tornado. She was ultimately. <laughs> I think she was ultimately shot by her lover or her husband who found her with her lover or something like that. But anyway, she would – when my parents would go away, she'd move all the furniture. We'd move all the furniture out. We would. That's right. We'd move all the furniture out of the living room and the whole band would come. 
this uh, our apartment was on 79th and Madison, and we would have the band and all our friends staying over for the whole weekend, and it was just like a crazy fucking scene. And we would rehearse. People down, we were on the sixth floor, and people on the street would be looking up, you know, because we were playing so loud. But in, I, I don't know what the hell how we got away with this. But and then when we would leave. The housekeeper, we'd go out to dinner on Sunday or lunch, whatever it was, and we'd come back and everything was back the way it was. By herself, she would move all the stuff. It was madness. Incredible. Yeah. You graduate from high school. You know, you went to college. Didn't you go to NYU? So I graduated from high school, and I didn't want to go to college. Now, you can imagine that was not a popular choice in my <laughs> wait, household. Wait, just to be clear, you weren't going to go to college and you do what? You were going to become a rock star? I was going to become a rock star. Okay. Yeah. And so my dad came to my room one day, and he says... I got a deal for you. Now, first of all, I wasn't even sure he knew where my room was, right? But he did. He just probably... to be clear, I mean, I'm just interested. Okay, he's working 12 hours a day during the week. Is he working the weekends too? He's working more than 12 hours a day. Um, I mean, it's gotten, even now, people work way more than, right. especially when you're on your way up, they work 100 hours a week. Right. But they, um, you know, but he was working a lot. And he would come home for dinner uh, under threat of uh, extreme violence right. from my mother and uh, then go back to the office. But um, but we had great times together, and I don't I don't fault him at all for that. Maybe it's, I don't know why, but it, it's just, it's fine. So, um, he says so he has he, a deal for you. What? So Your father a, says he has a deal. So he comes for you. to my room, he says, I got a deal for you. I go, what? He says, um, you have a year to become a rock star. Otherwise, you got to go to school. I'm like, great, dad, you got a deal. Me thinking that, you know, because what I lacked in talent, I made up for in chutzpah, right? So I was like, I don't even need a whole fucking year, right? <laughs> I had my, I had my song was being played on the, they had a show called Prisoners of Rock on WNEW, which is a big rock station in New York. And I got played a couple of times on there. I figured I'm almost home. I'm oh, right. almost there, right? Right. So, um, so anyway. Um, this is what year? 79. Okay. So he goes back to tell my mom about this deal he made. And my mom, who had never cursed in her life until this point, apparently, said, bullshit. <laughs> if he lives in my house, he's got to work or go to school. So now my dad, arguably the greatest negotiator of the 20th century, had to come back to my room <laughs> and undo the deal he had just made with his fucked up son, which right. was me. So. So he went and made a few phone calls. He called Arthur Lyman and said, Arthur, what should I do? Arthur was a famous litigator. He was the guy who actually litigated the case in the Attica uprising and everything else. Great civil rights icon as well. And Arthur said, let me call some. He called Steve Ross apparently, right, because he was Steve's lawyer. And then he uh, somehow or other I ended up having a meeting. For those people who don't know, he ran Warner Communications, Steve Ross at the time. Right. He was a legendary figure. And he uh, so, so Steve arranged for me to go have an interview with a guy named David Horowitz, who was the head of the Warner Music Division in those days, right? This is all unbeknownst to you, or he's telling you what he's doing? I knew nothing. Okay. So one day I was told to go report to David Horowitz's office at 75 Rockefeller Plaza. I didn't know who he was. And I smoked two joints, and I walked in, slumped down in the chair, and he goes, you're going to work at Atlantic Records. And I was like, huh, all right. Now, it's interesting, because they sent me to Atlantic Records. It was July 31st, 1979. They handed me... Some double-sided tape, a staple gun, a bunch of posters, Zeppelin posters and other posters. And they sent me out to go to the record stores and put up posters in these you record stores. You were going stores. to be a merchandiser. I was. A, I think my title was assistant trainee field merchandiser. <laughs> now, what's odd is that until this time, it had never even occurred to me that, that record, someone had a gig doing that. that. Well, it didn't even occur to me that record companies were a thing. Like, I didn't know where I thought records came from. And Atlantic was my favorite label. Because going back in time, here's a crazy story for you. When I was 15... My dad came home one day with a box of records. I was an avid record collector, but I probably had 125 records at this point. And he came home with a box of records from Atlantic. 
And I found out later that the story was that Amit had called, Amit Erdogan, right, the legendary founder of Atlantic Records, at least for a time, the greatest record man in his time of all time. Absolutely. And Amit had called my dad, unbeknownst to me, and said, Joe, I have a problem and my lawyers can't figure out what to do. I hear you're the best. Can you help me? And my dad said, I don't take individual cases. I, I work for corporations. But what's your problem? And apparently Ahmed told him what the problem was. And my dad told him what to tell his lawyers to go do. And he did, and it worked. So he called my dad and said, Joe, I got to do something for you. He says, ah, fuck it. Send my kids some records. He wouldn't have known they came in boxes. Right, right, right. right of so course. I, and that box, Bob, had Goat's Head Soup, James Gang Bang, Roberta Flack Killing Me Softly, Bad Company, I think it was Straight Shooter. Okay. I mean, it was fucking incredible. Exactly. The quality those control in those days was ridiculous. There was a few that I didn't like. Right, right, right. I think it was an Aretha Franklin record in there. I was like, get the fuck out of here. This Atlantic record. So the, it, that A became in de- like etched into my brain because I spent so much time watching the Goat, yeah, Goat's Head Soup. How many times of did course. I listen to that record? So that was the one with Heartbreaker. The, I, I used to, I had a stereo. Do remember, you remember the stereos that came in a little, they were like a little suitcase, right? It had a Absolutely. record player right. and the speakers folded it on top. Right. So I had a, a orange Formica table and I would stick my face straight down on the table and put one speaker on each side of my head (laughs) and play Heartbreaker over and over again just to hear the intro, right? Because it was the most rock and roll thing. Holy New York City. Uh, yeah, Holy Spirit City, right. right. Well, it was, really, it was really about the musical intro. It was like, dan, 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 And then they had some great stole stories. Can you hear the music in winter? Oh, fuck I, mean, I know those So in any event, you get this gig. You're not going to school or am I ahead of the story? No, so I'm one, I have a year to become a rock star, okay. right? But now I get this gig at Atlantic and I forget all about being a rock star. But at the same time, the first Van Halen record came out. And I'll never forget because we had taken some sort of hallucinogenic we were at my my friend's house, uh, and and um, and I was not a big guy. I didn't do a lot of that stuff. Right? Okay. So it was really, you know. And I happened to walk into his room, fully out of my mind, and he had just dropped the needle on the first Van Halen record. And you heard eruption. And I said, "Fuck it, this is ridiculous. There's no point. I right, might as well. Right. Exactly. I might as well try to dunk a basketball. <laughs> it's not with my three inch vertical Jewish leap. It's not going to happen." So I said, "Okay." So it was around. All this was sort of happening concurrently, but. Nonetheless, I was still trying in the beginning. I had to, they gave me a tiny little office because they just had an extra one. And I had a little couch, and I had around this time I discovered ACDC. I discovered them. I discovered that they existed, right? right? Exactly. I found Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap in the hallway, so I was throwing it out. And I took it home because it looked cool, and I started listening to it. And then I found out that ACDC had like four albums. Right. And I was like, holy shit, this is the greatest thing. It was almost as if someone had said, it's almost as if I, like Aerosmith had been in a time capsule. And all of a sudden I had like everything from Dream On to Rocks, right? And it was like, oh my God, it was a revelation. So I spent all my time, and I had an SG standard just right, like Angus. And one day I had it in the office with me, right? Because sometimes I'd have my guitar in the office. And I don't know if I've ever told this story in public, but so the head of publicity who knew how much I loved ACDC comes to me one day and she says, her name was Simo Doe. And Simo says, Jason, uh, ACDC is going to be in the building today. They had just started happening. The Highway to Hell was their first hit and it had just gone gold apparently. And she says, they're going to be here today. They're getting a gold album. So I was like, holy shit, where are they going to be? She goes, I think they're going to the 30th floor. Now we were on the second floor, um, Atlantic Records headquarters. So I said, fuck it, I'm going up to the 30th floor, which was corporate, right? So I go up to the 30th floor, I have hair, like I had tons of hair back then, right? Like tons. And of course, they're not letting me in. So then I decided I'd wait on the second floor to see if they showed up. And I'm standing there in the reception area, and they come tootling out of the elevator. You know, all of them are about 5'2", right? And I'm having an out-of-body experience, right? I haven't met rock stars before. So they come walking. I'll never forget Phil Rudd, the drummer 
had taken, they'd apparently given him a cake, and it was in a box. It was in a long, flat box. I don't know why he took it. Maybe it said ACDC on it. Who the hell knows? So he comes in, and he walks in. He puts it on the receptionist. He goes, hey, I'm a pizza delivery guy. Who's going to pay for these pizzas? I got, I'm doing, it sounds like a Southern accent. I'm trying to do Australian. <laughs> but anyway, so I was like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. And so I see Bon walking in. Bon fucking Scott, right? So right. I follow him. And I follow him to the hallway and I go, Bon, I got to talk to you, man. Like, it's so cool. Like, I, I just always wondered, you know, what the what you would sound like because the way you sing and the way you talk, like, how do you talk? And he goes, yeah, everyone thinks I sing like this. You know, he's holding his nose and he goes, yeah, come to think of it, mate. He says, I got cocaine nose and no cocaine. You got any? I was like, <laughs> I was like, no, but I got some weed in my office. You know, you want to come to my office? He was like, yeah, mate. You know, whatever. So he comes to my office. I've got my guitar. I've got my fucking demo tape in the office, which I hand to him, of course. Because I still used to, I was still, like, it's still a little distant dream there. That was my original thought when I got to work at Atlantic. I was like, holy shit, if I get a job doing an I can sign myself. I actually had that thought. So, you know, Bond leaves. And they go into the conference room. And I figure I've had my moment. And... An hour later, I'm walking down the hallway, and I see Angus, Bond, and Malcolm knocking on this door of this guy named Raphael Santana, who was our dance music guy. None of it made any sense to me, but I sort of was just staying out of the way at this point. And I walk by, and I hear him going, is Jason in there? Is Jason in there? And I'm like, are you are you looking for me? And and then Bond goes, hey, this is the guy right here. I tell you about him. He's got his guitar in his office. He's got his demo tape. You know? And I was like, oh, yeah. And then the fucking next thing I know, Angus and Malcolm come tootling down to my fucking tiny little office. And Angus plops himself down on the couch, picks up the guitar, and starts playing. Now, I've got a fucking poster of Angus on the wall, the Power Age poster. And he's sitting in front of it, playing a fucking SG standard. And you can imagine, my brain is exploding, right? Absolutely. And I'll never forget, I said to him, I go, Angus, I go, you know, I was asking a couple questions. And I was like, you know, you're so fucking cool. You're so great at guitar and you're so young. Like, when did you take it up playing? When did you take up playing seriously? And he goes, ah, I never took it up seriously. And I'm like, ah, shit, right? <laughs> right, right, and, right. And that's in keeping, because you know, there's that great quote from Angus where somebody said, uh, uh, where he said, um, I'm sick and tired of hearing people telling us uh, that we made 11 records and they all sound the same. We've actually made 12 that all sound the same. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so anyway, so I said, I figured I might as well push my luck because that's me, as you know. Absolutely. And so I asked him if he'd give me a guitar lesson, and he did. He taught me to play Kicked in the Teeth. He taught me to play, you know, that riff and Kicked in the Teeth. Right, he did that riff raff, and it was a, it was crazy. And then that became, you know, then I was now I was completely obsessed, and I ended up getting my first gold record um, for for Highway to Hell because I designed. I wandered into the head of advertising's office one day, who, who was like a deity to me. He was the vice president of advertising. His name was George Salovich. I go, George, I got an idea. He goes, What kid? What do you want? I go, I, I, We should do a, an ad for Highway to Hell. The highway to hell is paved with gold. And we could have like a gold highway in hell at the end and congratulate ACDC because Aerosmith had done these ads. You know, remember that famous Toys Built to Last ad? Actually, I don't. Oh, my God. It was the coolest thing when I was a kid. So Aerosmith had done an ad. They took an elephant and he had two fr- toys in the attic. And his two front, are they called feet? Elephants? Yeah, they're not paws. His two front right. feet, whatever they, the pads, what is the fucking, were, on, were balanced on Tonka trucks. And it just said, Toys Built to Last. Uh, Aerosmith, Double Platinum, Toys in the Attic. And I was like, that's the... Co-. And they did a number of these. They were incredible. They did, so, I don't know how I missed these. Those big Aerosmith things. Oh, that Rocks one was amazing. It was a glass full of diamonds and vodka being poured on it. There was one for Draw the Line where it was a woman, this gorgeous, of course, woman in, in like a leotard with these tights. And she was standing on a tightrope that she was painting. 
and and bending over and holding an Aerosmith umbrella, and it just said Aerosmith draws the line or whatever. Like, oh, oh no, it said pla- no, it said platinum in the line of duty. Right, that Aerosmith one I actually goes. know. Right. So anyway, so I so I said, oh George, we got to do this ad. So he says, no, we don't have money for these type of things, you know. So I said, oh shit. But then when it went platinum, he calls me in his office, and I look, and he has the mock up from the art department. The Highwood Hell is paved with platinum. I have the original mock-up in my house signed by all the ACDC guys, and I end up getting a gold record for that. So the point being, at the end of my year, because I was on the year trainee program, and at the end of the year, I had to go to school, but they asked me to stay. And so I ended up going to NYU, uh, you know, technically full-time, although I was rarely seen on campus, and working full-time at Atlantic. Um, You know, I was making $4 an hour, but I didn't care. I thought it was the greatest job in the world. Okay, a couple things. Was your father this aggressive? Uh, in terms of what? Well, you see an opportunity and you seize it. You gave Bon Scott your demo tape. I would be too uptight to do that. I said, oh, people must have been given a demo tape all the time. I got to be cool. You know, I don't have to push it. Where did you learn to push it? I don't know. I mean, look, my dad's the guy who wrote a letter to Harvard Law School, right? I mean, so, you know, there's that great saying, I think it was Wayne Gretzky that said, you miss 100% right. of the shots you don't take, right? And I've always felt that way. I mean, I don't, uh, I've, I've developed this thing over the years, you know, the times when I haven't done that, and then you sit around kicking yourself for somewhere between days and weeks, right? And then I decided, you know, anytime I do that, I'm going to give myself a non-moving violation, right? I kind of invented this phrase, I think. So I don't want those. I don't want non-moving violations. I'd rather deal with rejection than regret. So, you know, so to me, whether or not it's meeting a girl uh, out and about or, you know, just, and, you know, obviously you can't be too aggressive there, but, you know, you, you know, you could still go up and ask someone to talk to you. Okay. So when someone rejects you or things don't work out, how do you metabolize that? Just keep it moving. Like just. So, okay. So if you fail, come right back up to bat. Yeah. What are you going to do? If you fail, you fail. I mean, you can't take it personally. And, <laughs> and, the, and the sting Many lasts, people do. The sting is much shorter, though. It doesn't last as long. As, as if, you know, you, you ever see those ads or whatever? Somebody, uh, the girl, there was a girl on the subway on Tuesday. And I mean, like you see, they used to be a thing like in the Village Voice. Right. Or something. That's ridiculous. By the way, do you know how I first became aware of you? No. Not to flip the script or anything, but the first time I heard about you, the Left Sets letter, so this is in probably 1990 or so, and the Left Sets letter was like mimeographed or whatever you used to do, right. Xerox, I don't know what the fuck you used to do, and stapled right. and sent out. And I would see it on people's desks, and I didn't fucking know. And I think I saw it on Tunj Aram's desk. Okay. And he was on the, Tunj Aram was a legendary, um, uh, in a lot of ways, but he had been various times the head of promotion, the head of A&R, head of publicity, Atlantic Records. Um, Justin, we could do a whole podcast about him and his stories. It's fucking incredible. And uh, I saw it on his desk, and I picked it up, and I started reading it. And you had done a whole thing about Tori Amos's lips. Absolutely. Right. So, And this is when I had signed Tori Amos, and um, the first record had stiffed, right? It was Why Can't Tori Read? And the second one was, of course, Little Earthquakes. And it was just starting to happen, and she had made that phenomenal video that that groundbreaking video for silent all these years and bob had written i'm talking about you in the third person bob had written pretty much a diatribe about the way her lips moved in the thing and i was like this guy's nuts but i like him (laughs) (laughs) and i think i might have reached out to you back then but that's the first time i became aware but let's go back so now you're going to nyu full-time you're working full-time how does that play out so technically, I was still a part-time employee, but I was working like 35 hours a week at $4 an hour. I think I might have gotten a raise to 450 by now. And there was a whole controversy about that. I mean, it was like I had to get the president. But tell the story how you're putting up posters and they think you're a spy. 
Oh, well, no, that was when I first came in there. So they assigned me. There was a guy named Philip Van Poole, who was the uh, field merchandiser, and I was assigned as a trainee to him. Now, all he knew, and he was a kid from the streets, whatever, and, and from Baltimore, I think, and all he knew was that corporate had said, you're to take this kid around, and whatever you're doing, stop doing it. Right, like whatever it is, don't fucking do it around this kid. I don't know why that. Oh no, no, that corporate had sent me to him. His immediate bosses were the two heads of sales, Sal Uterano and Nick Maria, who were characters of the eighth order. Right, the names are perfect. Like if you had to cast these guys as themselves, right, you'd name them that. So anyway, so um, so yeah, they had told him clean up your fucking act, whatever you're doing. So he took me the first day. To 14 record stores. I remember it was July 31st, 1979. We are traipsing all over Manhattan, carrying these rolls of posters and staple guns and double-sided tape and all this shit and climbing around on ladders. And I remember at one point, I, I, you know, I said, hey, do you want to stop and smoke a joint? He's like, no, man, I can't do that. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're the, we got too much work. To do. And I was like, can we stop and get lunch? He was like, we got 10 minutes, man. Let's get some pizza. I was like, pizza? It's 100 degrees. <laughs> like, I mean, but that was my first day. And I went home and I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Like, I don't know how I'm going to make this. Work. And then the next day I came in with a case of like the, you know a few joints, whatever, and I was like, come on, let's go smoke. And then I don't think we ever did more than three displays in a day after that. It was it was ridiculous. We became friends. Okay, so now you're going to school and you're working in Atlantic. What's the next move? So then I decided, you know, I found out there were these guys that at various times I was delivering the mail or doing other things, and I, I started to see these A and R guys, right? I would deliver the mail to the office, and none of them looked particularly adept to me. Um, and they weren't. Actually, you know, Atlantic, uh, I think Ahmed had signed all the hits or whatever it was, or Phil Carson or somebody. And, uh, you know, so I was like, fuck, I, you know, I, it seems to me that I'm, if I could be half good at this, I'd be three quarters better than the rest of these guys. You know, that was actually my calculus. So I decided I need to get a job doing A&R. Well, that was tricky. So what happened was sort of a miracle. The zebra, did I ever tell you the zebra story? No. So zebra was, so here's how I found my way into the A&R department. And I think for, for people who may be listening that want to make it in the music business or starting to make it in the music business, this story is probably going to be helpful. So I decided that I would study because rock was my shit, right? And there was a magazine back then, which you'll remember, called Album Network. Of course. And Album Network was the Bible of rock radio. And on the cover, they would print the, here's the four biggest gainers, here's the four top new releases, here's the four, whatever the fuck it was. There were 16 albums on the cover. And then inside, there would be comments from all different programmers and different things that were going on and whatever the well it was. And on the back of the magazine, they printed the playlist of all 190 rock stations in the country at the time. That's how many there were. And they were very small, but my eyes were 20, 20 back Exactly. And, and it was plus, really small. And plus, I was smoking weed, and I would just <laughs> sit there and stare at these things. And I said, you know what? If, one, if I can find, and they would have the name of the radio station, the phone number, and the name of the program director, music director. And I said, if I can find one of these stations that's playing an act that's not already signed, maybe that could be a break for me, you know? so That's interesting. You came up with that by yourself. Yeah. Because that was Doug Morris's big thing to do research, et cetera, ultimately. Yeah, but he didn't even know me at that time. Like, he, I know. It's just funny. There's a parallel there. Yeah. Okay, so you're going to... You're looking for an unsigned act in the back of Album Network. Right, and then I would call the radio station and pretend that I was somebody whose call they should take, even though I was from Atlantic Records. I wasn't going to tell them I'm the fucking... I didn't even have an right, office right, anymore. Right. I had, like, a desk and whatever. And, you know, half the time they wouldn't take my call, and another half of the time they would say, oh, that act's already signed to RCA. Would you, you know, who are you? It would waste my time, and it would be that. So, as fate would have it, WBAB in Long Island was playing an act called uh, The Lines, so I called up and I got the program director, Bob Buckman, who's still in the business, on the phone. And I said, Bob, what's with the lines? He says, ah, it's nothing. I, I put it on as a favor to somebody. It's really nothing you need to be concerned with. So you hadn't even heard it? No. 
There was no way to hear it back then. Right. No that's why I'm, I'm just reinforcing. Whatever. So I said, well, and again, in an act of exactly what you were talking about a few minutes ago, I said to him, well, if you were me, who would you sign? Now, this was a ridiculous thing to say. Of I course. couldn't sign my fucking name half the time, right? Because I was too blitzed. So he says, he says, let me tell you about Zebra. I go, what's Zebra? He goes, it's the most requested band at the radio station. I said, oh, you mean the most requested local band? He goes, genius, hold on a second. I thought that was funny because my dad used to call me genius, right. ironically, since he actually was one. But anyway, so um, so he goes and gets the log because they used to actually track the requests because kids would call the radio stations back then. They didn't have a lot of other ways of hearing their favorite song, especially if it wasn't out. Right. But they would call and request everything. And so he comes back and he says, in the last quarter of the year, 6.8% of all the requests we came in were for Zebra. Number two, was number two, three, and four, I remember, were some combination of Ozzy, ACDC, and Led Zeppelin. I don't know in which order. And I said, holy shit, how do I get a hold of this? And he goes, hold on, I'll call the guys on the other phone. So there was no conference calling back then either. So he calls them. They lived in New Orleans. And the singer's name was Randy Jackson, not the Randy Jackson that you know from TV or Journey or whatever. So he calls Randy. Now, these guys have been playing clubs for nine years, and they'd given up on getting a record deal by now. They would play New York in the summer because it was too hot in New Orleans, and then they would go back to New Orleans in the winter, and they, and they were one, a big band in both markets. They sounded a lot like Led Zeppelin. And so the next day, I get to my desk, and there's a FedEx package on my desk. Now, FedEx was relatively new back right. then, so I was very excited. It was glowing, and I think it had an album in it. I didn't know where to play an album. So I went to one of the A&R guys' offices. A guy whose name was Aziz Goxel. He was Ahmed's nephew. And he's one of the guys whose job I wanted. So anyway, I said to him, you're about to hear the next big thing. And he says, really? Did you listen to it? How's this? I said, no, no, I'm just telling you, right? (laughs) And so he puts the record on. I can't even hear because I'm too excited. And at the end of it, he says, this is no good. Uh, It gave me five reasons why it was no good. So I go back to my desk and I'm calling Randy to tell him it's no good. And I'm halfway through dialing. And I said to the, the assistant secretary, whatever, who was sitting in front of me, Mary was her name, Mary Conroy. I said, Mary, how does this make any sense? I'm calling this guy to tell him his shit is no good. Meanwhile, he's the number one guy on the radio stage, number one band on the radio stage, and he's selling out all these clubs. He goes, doesn't make any sense to me either. So I call him up. I said, Randy, listen, this guy said no good for all these different reasons, but I'm going to give it to Doug Morris and see what he says. So Doug was the president of Atlantic at the time. So I made a cassette of it. I wrapped it up in a piece of paper and put a rubber band, and I went to his, Doug's assistant's you know, desk, and I put it on top of this other wall of cassettes that he was never going to listen to, that other people had, were hoping he would listen to. And as... Again, destiny, fate, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, kismet, synchronicity. He happens to pull a few of these things off her desk to take on his drive home to Long Island where he lived. And he's listening to Zebra in the car, who's behind the door was the song, and he decides he doesn't like it and he pops it out of the take deck and it's playing on the fucking radio because he lived in Long Island and everybody lived in Long Island listening to WBAB. So the thing, he's like, what the... So... So the DJ at the end of the song says that's the most requested song in the history of WBAB, Zebra Who's Behind the Door. Now, the perfect guy to hear that was Doug Morris because Doug is the guy who taught everyone in the music business how to do research. Right. So he built a huge, one of the most important careers in the history of the music business on research, largely. I mean, so, and other things. So he comes in the next day. They were allowing me by now to sit in the A&R meetings because I would do research. Somebody would say, I like this band from uh, Iowa called Mackinac. And I'd say, they'd say, Jason, call some of the stores there, the clubs, and find out if anybody likes this group. So we're sitting in this meeting, and somebody's talking about something, and Doug goes, wait a minute, what's Zebra? And I'm sitting there, you know, having like, right. I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned. And he goes, this is genius. And I was like, huh? 
And he goes, fly these kids up here. I want to meet them. So that's how it all started. And it was a crazy process from there, too. But the, the great thing was that the demand had built up so much that when the record came out, it was like it was literally Midnight Madness. Kids all cut school. They came, records came out on Mondays in those days. And the kids all cut school and we went to the store and they were pulling them out of the boxes before the guy could even stamp the price on them. And they were buying two or three copies at once. And it became a, a big out-of-the-box smash in these two markets. So now all of a sudden they were like, hey, this kid must know what he's doing. Let's give him a job doing an and I was like, thank you. And that's how it started. Okay, how long after you'd started Atlantic did that transition take place? It's only a couple of years. I was in college. Okay, so how long did you go to college for? Two years and change. And how did college end? My dad said to me, you're better. I, I had two records on the charts, and he said, you're better off doing one thing right than two things wrong. And I was like, thanks, Dad. I'm out of here. And by the way, here's a platinum t- Twisted Sister record. I, <laughs> I actually gave him the platinum. That was, that was the first platinum other than ACDC, which I, you know, was a totally different thing because it was for an ad I designed. But um, I gave him the first platinum Twisted Sister, which was Stay Hungry, on the condition that he hang it in his office. And it hung in his office for his entire oh, life. really? Yeah. And what was the other record that was successful? Zebra was the first one. Oh, oh, yeah. How, but you said there were two projects. Was one of them Zebra? Yeah. How far did Zebra go? It went gold. I mean, okay. it didn't get much. And then the second record, unfortunately, Jack Douglas was the producer, and Jack was a mess. And he he was really losing it. John Lennon had been his best friend, and John had been killed. And he was going through a terrible period. And he really, uh, it was, and by the way, making the Zebra record was an insane, insane experience, too. Because Jack was already in this you know, state. And right. now I had gone, you know, what happened was... After, and you hired Jack because he did all the legendary Aerosmith records. So, yeah, what happened was Doug had gotten cold feet at a certain point. And I would come home at night and say, Dad, I don't understand. What do I do? How do I go back to this? And he'd give me advice how to approach him every day and say something different. But finally, I decided I got to get this off the dime. So I went and I figured I'd call Jack Douglas. He just won the Grammy for Double Fantasy. Right. I figured if I can get the biggest producer in the world to agree to do this, then maybe I can get this group to finally get signed. And I got him. I convinced him his manager to get him to come to a show with me. I remember I rented like a tiny little car. It was the only thing I could get, like a Honda, and I drove him to Long Island, and he agreed to produce the record. I wanted him because you're right, because he had done the greatest Aerosmith right. albums, and the band loved uh, the John Lennon album, so it was perfect. What we didn't realize is that Jack was now like three sheets to the wind. He was he was been so devastated and twisted up by, by the horrible, untimely death of his best friend and hero, John Lennon, and, you know, he would book a session for Tuesday and show up on Thursday and not call anyone. And the band would sleep in the studio. And meanwhile, it was record plant and we were just getting billed and billed right. and billed. And the prices are going up and up and up. And I'll never forget one day, Doug comes to my office. Now, the budget for the album was 130000 which back then was a lot. Right. Because right? Jack was getting 55000 It sounds like nothing. These people get fifty-five a track, right? right? right, right but right. back then, it was a lot. So Doug comes to my office one day, slams the door shut and starts banging his fists on the table. And Doug's an intimidating guy. You know, they'd given me an, a, a, an office by now. Um, I remember my first, whatever, tiny little office. And he's like, what the fuck is going on with this thing? The record's over budget already. There are not even any tracks. What are and he's screaming. And, he, you know, his neck, the bald neck muscles are budging out of his neck and stuff. And I'm sitting there. He goes, you call this Jack Douglas motherfucker and you tell him get his shit together right fucking now. And he leaves my office and I'm sitting there going, okay. <laughs> Let's process this. I just got out of high school. <laughs> I'm going to call Jack Douglas. Right. And go, listen, Jack, you know who you're dealing with here? <laughs> like, what does that make any sense? And I remember the, the, an unbelievable story. So finally, the records, at t- we're at almost $230,000 spent, and they're mixing. And I was at the record plant on the 10th floor, 
and we're in the studio, and Jack was hearing noises that didn't exist, right? So he had three 24-track boards stung, strung together. There were, there were shrimp talking and, and, and whales barking and things in the tracks that, you know, no one could hear except him. But we had all these things strung together. And in those days, there was no automation. So right. everyone's got their hands on the boards, and I don't know what I'm doing, but everyone's doing something. And the manager of the record plant, a guy named Mitch, comes in the studio and says, Jack, it was 10 to 4 on a Tuesday. And he goes, Jack, you're done. I've had it with your bullshit. You're out of here. The fucking record. Atlantic pulled the plug. The record's canceled. Get the fuck out of my studio. Because he had had it, right? And so, and I'm sitting here watching this hero of mine being screamed at by the gentleman of the record plant. And I'm also watching my career go up in smoke, right? Because Atlantic's pulling the plug on the only record I'm ever going to sign. And so Jack goes... Give me 10 more minutes to finish the album. I need 10 fucking minutes. And I'm like, <laughs> you can imagine I'm like in a ping pong match, right? My head's going back and forth. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? So the guy says, you got 10 minutes to finish this album. Obviously ridiculous. And so they barricaded the door. Like Jack literally barricaded the door. There were two doors to the studio, but there was a step that you would walk in and you'd go up a step. And people who were in the studio back then will remember. And this is a legendary studio too. This is where Stephen wrote the lyrics to some of the Aerosmith songs on the walls. So we barricaded the studio with an eight-track machine or whatever it was, a multi-track machine, that door. And then there was a roadie or two roadies holding the other door shut. And that's how we finished the record. I mean, it went on like that all day with banging on the door. And But the record came out and nothing really happened. No, it? it exploded because all the kids had been waiting for the record to be released. So it exploded exploded out of the gate. It was number one selling record in, in like record town and all these different stores and then everyone's running around the hallways thinking I know what the fuck I'm doing. It was awesome. Hi everyone, Bob Lefsetz here. I just wanted to take a moment and thank you for listening to my podcast. I'm humbled by the initial response to the podcast and have been able to line up some excellent guests in future episodes. I can't wait to share those and hear the podcast evolve. I think you're in for a treat. So be sure to subscribe, leave reviews, tell your friends. It's going to be a big year. Now, more with Jason Flom. So tell the Twisted Sister story. So the Twisted Sister story, which has been, uh, uh, you know, a subject of some, uh, you know, debate in your, uh, in your letter. Yeah, well, Phil Carson has a different view. I've heard your viewpoint, but I thought you, you know... It's Just a, tell the story through your eyes. The only thing we, we're arguing about is semantics. What happened is not in dispute, right? What happened was Randy from Zebra says to me one day, Flom, Twisted Sister's the greatest live band in the world. He goes, we can't touch them and neither can anyone else. And I was like, oh, I got to go see this. Now, I had bought one of their records when I was in high school at Disco Bad. I bought, I think it was uh, Shoot Em Down or I'll Never Grow Up Now. And so I knew about the band, but it didn't occur to me as something that, you know, whatever. So Wednesday night, Mid Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie. Two hours north of New York City. Twisted Sisters headlining and opening is Zebra and DC Star. I thought it was odd. Zebra has a record deal. Twisted Sister doesn't. 3,000 kids on a Wednesday night at six bucks a head. I go up there. They allow me to stand on the stage. D comes out. The band comes in. Polite applause for DC Star and Zebra. And then they come out and the place is on fire. Right? And and the kids are, are roaring. And D comes out and he goes... All right, New York, fucking city, or Poughkeepsie, whatever he says. He goes, we just got back from fucking England. We're sick and fucking tired of hearing those limey motherfuckers telling us how bloody good we are. He goes, what do you New York motherfuckers have to say? And 3,000 kids, I swear, Bob, throw their fists in the air and go, twisted fucking sister. And I was like, I'm done. Right, right. I don't care. Right. Who cares what they do after that? It doesn't matter because Doug had now taught me. Right? Doug had taught me that your opinion is secondary to the public's opinion. Right? Which he taught. To half of the music business. And Monty, of course, became, Monty and Avery became the greatest at right. this. They took his advice and turned it into the number one label in the world. So they, uh, 
they performed. It was phenomenal because they they had done thousands of shows by now. They were great. And I got back to the city. I rode back with JJ. I got back to the city. I think I got two hours of sleep. And I walked into Doug's office in the morning on on two hours of sleep and three kinds of God knows what. And uh, I said to him, I found religion last night. And he goes, what the fuck are you talking about? You know how there's that dichotomy when somebody's wide awake right. and you're half asleep? Right. <laughs> I, go, I go, twisted sister. He says, get the fuck out of my <laughs> office. And by the way, go home. You look like shit. Right. And I was like, huh, that didn't go the way I planned, you know? So I kept coming back to him uh, every day with another story. But I didn't realize that Twisted Sister was considered a joke by the entire music industry at this point, which made no sense to me. The next night I went to South Jersey to see him, which is to give people who don't know the area an idea 200 and something miles away. And there were 3,700 kids at the Fountain Casino. And I was like, this comes with instructions, right? right? Exactly. So I said, but I would go back to him every day and every day he'd throw me out of his office. And it finally, um, it finally hit a, a low point um, when and this and the record was selling like crazy. They had an independent record on Secret Records, and, and at one point WPLJ in New York City started playing it. And I remember going to Dave Glue, who was the general manager, for I would go to everybody for advice. I couldn't figure it out why everybody hated them so much. And then Christmas, one particular year, we have a meeting of the A&R department. Now this was the worst year that Atlantic had had in a long time, which had followed the best year. Right, the previous year they had five of the top ten records. They had Genesis and Stevie Nicks and Farner and the Rolling Stones and Yes. And this year, none of the big acts made records, and we didn't break anything, and it was a disaster. So Doug gave us a, a rah-rah speech. He was great at this shit. And he says, everybody together, the A&R department, we're going to sink or swim, or a team, or this, or that, whatever. He says, but Jason, if I ever hear the name Twisted Sister again, you will never work another day at this record company. And I was like, hmm, that was pretty straightforward. Um, so <laughs> so I, uh, I didn't know what to do next, but... Shortly thereafter, I saw a guy named Phil Carson in the hallway. Now, he didn't know me, but I knew who he was because he was a legend already. He was a generation ahead of me. He had signed, from what I understood, ACDC, I think maybe Yes. Um, I mean, like crazy shit, you know, like some off the way. And I knew he was the head of the English company. So I went up to Mr. Carson. I handed him the cassette. I handed him a whole sheets and sheets of information about the sales and the tickets and the things and the whatever and the fucking... And, and then, um, I don't know how long ago, maybe a month later, he calls me up one morning from England. And he says, I saw Twisted Sister last night. They're the best thing I've seen since ACDC. And I'm going to sign them. And I said, what are you going to do about America? And he says, don't worry, I'll get them to put it out. Now, I find out later that he apparently took the whole thing that I had painstakingly put together and given to him and threw it in the garbage because he didn't know who I was. But then it was a coincidence, another great coincidence, because my life is synchronicity and coincidence and serendipity. And they happened to be opening a show that he was at. It may have been foreigner, I don't know who. And he saw them as a result of that, and he saw the vision. And then to Doug's everlasting credit, you know, the first record came out, it was called You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. And it sold 100,000 copies in America. Now, you can imagine it came out, could you make a lower priority than no. this? Right? He had to put it out as a favor to Phil, but I still wasn't allowed to mention it. But I was calling all the local reps and everybody else, and um, which I also wasn't allowed to do. I would get in trouble at least once a week for that. And... Uh, and the record sold 100,000 on fumes. And then one day Doug calls me in his office and he says, you were right. And we're going to make a big thing out of this band. And then Doug had the vision to hire Tom Warman, 
to get Marty Colner to direct those, what became some of the most legendary know, videos yeah, of all time. Yeah. The first ones I think that had, um, you know, had talking, you know, had like movies, right, right, right. right exactly. Meyer and all that thing. And you know, what do you want to do with your life? Right. right. So, <laughs> so Doug really masterminded and that album sold 6 million copies. So, you know, so anyway, it's been, you know, it was an amazing thing to be a part of. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they crashed and burned on the next record. They didn't want to use Tom Worman again, which I never understood. As little as I did understand back then, it didn't make sense to me that you wouldn't dance with who brought you to the dance. Um, but uh, it went horribly wrong. And um, the next album didn't sell anything. And ultimately, they broke up. So, okay. What were some of your successes and failures after that? Well, so then came a girl named Fiona. She had a song called Talk to Me. There was a half a hit. So all of a sudden, I was basically three for three. Right. But then I started getting messed up you know um the, the the this was a time of great excess in the music industry and it caught up to me and uh i ended up going to rehab doug doug pretty much forced me to go to rehab which again i mean i i owe my life as a result because i don't think i'd be here and um you know i went not knowing what the like, rehab wasn't a big thing back then i remember telling my mom i was going to rehab and she was wondering if i was going to come out like with, with wearing a smock and banging a tambourine at the <laughs> right, port right, authority you right, know what right, i mean right. like she was like with sandals and a one piece of hair hanging off the back of my head you know so it was not part of the vernacular you know or the culture but i went and i came out and i was a little woozy but all of a sudden like white lion had made an album while i was in the studio and uh, it came out doing nothing. And then one radio station broke that album, a station called KJJO in Minneapolis, started playing it, and it exploded off that station. Then I signed Skid Row and Escape Club around that time, and Tori Amos, of course, which was, you know, looking back, one of my proudest signings, and also one that's had a lot of meaning in my life in a lot of very odd and interesting ways. Then eventually they made me the head of the A&R department, and around well, that... okay, did you have any failures? Of course. I don't remember all of them. There's a lot of them. I mean, everybody does. Nobody okay. bat, nobody bats 400. You know right. that. Um, so it's like baseball. If you can bat 300, you end up in the Hall of Fame. And nobody remembers the misses as long as you have big hits. So, um, so they made me the head of the NR department, and then we went on this crazy roll. Um, a guy named Tom Carolyn, who was an NR guy, brought me Stone Temple Pilots. And I jumped on a plane right away. Um, this is when Danny Goldberg had first come in, and we roped him in because he had the alt cred, you know. Um, I'm not sure, you know, how he really felt about the music, but he went and sold it real good. And, um, so we signed Stone Temple Pilots and around that time it was Hootie and the Blowfish. And I remember going to see Jewel when she was, had like five people in a coffee shop in San Diego and, and the, <laughs> with the cappuccino machine. And, <laughs> and I went back two months later and there were 300 people there and silent, you know, just staring at her like she was a, you know, a combination of a ghost and a god. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. Um, and so we had this, this amazing string of successes. Um, I'm leaving some out. But, uh, and, and it's worth noting that I'd signed Sabotage actually before I went to rehab um, because we know how that ended up. But they ended up with tuxedos playing Christmas music and calling themselves Trans-Siberian Orchestra. But that's a different story. But, but uh, okay, so tell us how it evolves into Lava. So what happened was, I believe that they, um, the perception was that music was changing. And this, you'll remember this, this Carolina sound was like all the rage all of a sudden. Right. Everybody wanted to sign Super Chunk and all these type of bands, right? And, uh, <clears throat> and so they hired a guy named Jay Farris, who was in from that scene. He had a company called Mammoth Records. I didn't. I didn't know why they would do that, but they did. And then they decided to move me aside and let him run the A&R department. So they gave me the opportunity to restart Atco Records. And I didn't want to do that. It sounded, I said to Doug, it sounds old to me. You know, can I, can I name the thing myself? He said, sure. So I came up with the name Lava. 
because it's hot. Also, I was thinking about, you know, great forces of nature like the Atlantic. And, of course, lava is hot and it flows and it, it destroys everything in its path. And it sounds like love. And you wanted a short name back then because CDs were coming in. And, <laughs> right. You know, you couldn't see a long name. Right. So, so I started Lava. And I think they said – Okay, but they gave you a good deal or that you – No, they gave me a terrible deal. And they gave me – they set me up to fail. I mean, they – I didn't know it at the time. But they gave me three – the ability to hire three people, very small budget, no acts – and um, and I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I don't know how to start a business. So what year are we in? I think that's ninety five or six. Okay. And uh, I went and asked for advice from anybody I could think of um, who had had this experience. Um, and uh, you know, there's that great saying: "Fake it till you make it." Right. right? And so I hired a woman named Valerie DeLong. She was like my right hand, and we. Um, we started off, and we started off good. I mean, one of the first acts I signed was Edwin McCain. It was brought to me by Kim Stevens, um, who was a promotion guy uh, at um, at Atlantic, who had an ear for talent. He had brought me Collective Soul earlier. He had also brought in Seven Mary Three, which I didn't sign because I couldn't stand them, but right. they had a hit anyway, um, ironically on Mammoth. And uh, and then Jill Sobule had a half a hit, and Siv had a half a hit, and Biff Naked had a half a hit, and then things got hot. Then Sugar Ray came along, right, and had Fly, and that exploded. And then then I then the same guy, Kim Stevens, brought me Matchbox Twenty, which was called Tap at the Secret back then. And I remember because this is a lesson in this too. He sent me four songs. I listened to my call on, but I was like, I'm not sure. He goes, Listen to 3 a.m. again. I listened to 3 a.m. again. It was the only one on that four song right. that became a hit. I said, let's go see these guys. I went down, I think we went to Tallahassee or somewhere. And it was not what you see today, trust me. I mean, they were not, I don't even think they were in tune. They had two, <laughs> they had two different guitar players back then. Nobody was paying attention to them. There wasn't even a stage. But I was like, there's something special about this guy, this Rob Thomas guy. So we signed them. And of course, we know what happened next. And it's funny, I remember even on the first record, because I always have, like, at the last minute, I'm always wondering if we picked the right first single. And I remember sitting in my office with Rob, going back and forth, whether it was Real World or Long Day for the first single. But then, you know, and there's magic in all this, these lessons, right? After Long Day was a big hit at rock radio, sold whatever, maybe 100,000 records. And then a radio station down south who liked them a lot in Birmingham actually started playing Push. So I called the record stores and it was blowing the doors off. And the guy from the station told us that it was the only thing that he was getting a request for. No one cared about Real World or any of the songs. So I went to the band manager. I said, this is the next single. They're like, oh, no. And I was like, no, the Doug Morris thing was in my head, right? So obviously that became their career song. And then he's had so many other amazing songs since then. And then a guy named Andy Carp. The young A&R guy who worked for me brought me Kid Rock. And uh, and that was in some ways the most fun. Now, Kid Rock had made records and was, you know, had been around the mill already. So Kid Rock um, had had three albums, all stiffs. The first, he, would sign, he was signed to Jive when he was 17. His first single was a song about eating pussy called Yodeling in the Valley. <laughs> and do you remember that? No, re- I don't. It's really funny. <laughs> yodeling in the Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yodeling in the Valley. <laughs> a delicious break from potatoes. And anyway, so... Um, that had made a tiny ripple. And then he had two albums on a, on a company, I think it was called Continuum, and they went bankrupt. One was the Polyfuse Method or whatever. So he was damaged goods. But Andy comes to see me. Kid Rock's manager had given him a CD. I think it's South by Southwest. He says, I think I, I think something here. I go, all right, so go see him. So he goes to Cleveland to go see him. He comes back. I said, how's the show? He goes, I don't know. He goes, you know, there's only 40 people there, but he comes out of a coffin to start the show, and there's a little person on stage <laughs> cursing and rapping, and I was like, I think I better go see this for myself. So I went to, I went to Detroit and saw him at the State Theater, and it was, it was awesome. But then we had a meeting 
He told me to meet him in the basement of some disco club, whatever, like 2.30 in the morning, so I did. And uh, it was quite a strange scene. And I said to him, what do you want to do? Are you a rap? Are you a rock? What do you, what's your thing? And he was like, don't worry, I'll, I'll make some songs and I'll show you what I'm doing. And I said, do you want me to pay for them? He said, no, which is a very kid rock thing to say. So he sent me two songs. Somebody's got to feel this and I got one for you. And then I got one for you. He name checked me. I don't know if you remember that, but there's a verse. Where I he do, says, of course, yeah, I remember. Yeah, hey Flom, you want to hit money? Right, ha, right, ha, right, I exactly. got one for you. So I didn't know that they were essentially demos. I was on Hollywood Boulevard when I put those two things on, and I called him up and I said, "I'll give you whatever you want." And he said, "I want, I think it was three hundred thousand and whatever number of points." And I said, "Deal." We shook hands over the phone, and then his manager at the time, I think, went and shopped my deal, and he started getting calls. To his everlasting credit, Rock started getting calls from other labels, and he was like, "I don't need you now. I needed you then." And he didn't hold me up when they offered him more money. Now, the same was true with Matchbox, by the way. Hollywood Records offered to triple our offer. And Rob said, no, I'm signing with, uh, with Lava. And uh, that was a very good decision. And for Kid Rock, it was an even better decision right. because that was the hardest project to break. And that's why it was the most fun. And also because he was such an outrageous character and you know, just such an, such an unbelievably brilliant performer. You know? Okay, so how did you break Kid Rock? So he went and made this album, Devil Without a Cause. I thought it was one of the greatest albums of all time. It is. And everyone else hated it. With the exception of Lee Trink, Angelica Cobb, and Andy Carpenter, and our guy, everybody fucking hated it. His peers thought very little of him. Radio couldn't be less interested. Press thought he was a joke, this white rapper with a fade, whatever. And, uh, uh, you know, um, um, MTV couldn't be less interested. And Atlantic, the company that I was, you know, partnered with, um, they hated it. Um, they hated it. I, we did a showcase in New York, Bob. The first Kid Rock showcase in New York was the greatest thing ever. We, we rented out SIR. We sent out the invitation. It just was a, a, a sheet of paper, and it, it was very – the lettering, everything was perfect. But it just said, hydraulic bongs, cursing midgets, pimp, show, uh, pimp suits, coffins. And then it just said, Kid Rock, SIR, 7 p.m. That's all it said. And that was the wrong order, but those were the right things. And we rented a pony from a children's party place for $200 because <laughs> Joe C., who was the, 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 you know, the, the, yeah, the you can't person. say that anymore. I can't say right? that, but he's yeah. dead. Uh, I could say because that's what they referred to him when he was alive. That's right. I don't know what to do there. The political correctness is tough. Right. So we rented this pony. He didn't want to get on it. He thought it was a horse, but it was a pony. And we paid $200 for the pony, and then we had to pay $200 to SIR to, to bribe a guy to let him in. They don't usually have farm animals in there. So Josie rode on stage on a pony and did the rap for Cowboy um, while waving a six-shooter and wearing a cowboy hat. And we had Christmas lights strung around and we called it an electric pimp suit, whatever. And it was a full Kid Rock arena show like you would see today in SIR. And all of Atlantic was there. And I was just as proud as I could be. And the next day, they, I found out they all thought it sucked. I was like, Sucked? Are you guys out? This is like watching Guns N' Roses in a studio. Are you out of your mind? It's the greatest fucking thing ever. So anyway, we were really up against it. And how it broke was that as it was going nowhere, and Lee Trink had written, even written a letter to Howard Stern and said, you know about this? He said, no, Lee, I don't know about Lee wrote a letter. Lee was a product manager. He was a young guy and who ultimately became Kid Rock's manager. And he wrote a letter to Howard Stern because we thought if we can get him on Howard. And, you know, Kid Rock was always with strippers and things. He was a very Howard type of guy. Right. So if we could get him on on Howard, we thought, you know, uh, maybe that'll be a, you know, a tipping point, whatever. 
So, so Trink wrote a letter to Howard and said, Dear Howard, you don't know me, but I'm Kid Rock's product manager, and I have the following offer for you. If you'll play this record on the radio just once, and then tell me honestly that you don't like it, I'll set myself on fire. He says, I'll take all the necessary safety precautions, and you can film it if you want, but that's my offer to you. And they didn't respond, so whatever. But, you know, and, 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 Rock, and Trink had been an Israeli paratrooper, so, you know, he was pretty serious. But anyway, but we were trying everything is my point. So one day I took Lewis Largent from MTV Golfing, and Lewis was one of the senior programming guys there. And we had a great day. How long after the record come out was this? It was months and months. It was dead. So I took uh, Lewis golfing. And this goes back to something my father told me, which is that one of the keys to success in business is being friendly. So I took, I took uh, Lewis golfing at Hudson National Golf Club, great golf course. We had a great day. He was a good golfer. We get in my Tahoe to drive home, a Tahoe with the stock stereo, which was very good. And in my car, I control the volume, right? So I turned this fucking thing up to 11. And I played five songs. And he had already heard the record and rejected it. And after the fifth song, he turns to me and he goes, this guy's going to save the world. And I said, I know, but it's much more important for you to know. And he goes, Flom, you're going to touch them all on this one. And then he went back to MTV. I introduced him to Rock. They ended up staying all night cleaning out a hotel minibar. But he went back and said, we're going to, he made a stand. And he said, we're going to break this guy. And they did. Like, a Fashionably Loud was a big thing, MTV Beach House. We got him on all these shows. They started playing I'm the Bull God in light rotation. And, um, you know, the next thing you know, along comes Ba with the Ba, and the rest is history. Okay, so none of those videos were made at that point? No, I and the Bull God had been made, because I was putting real money into it, because I believed. I mean, we spent 100000 on it, I think, on the, It was a real video. It was a great video. I mean, it was so, live. And, so when it started to turn, what did everybody say over Atlantic? Not much. You know? <laughs> and, of course, we took out an ad when it went platinum, which was just the middle, his middle finger, right. comma, zero, 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 comma, zero, 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 right? And it ran directly opposite the Christian radio charts and Billboard. People don't remember that. And then when it hit $10 million, we just moved it over and added a zero, and it was just like, hey, you know what? Like, this is, and we did it right, and it was fun. And it was awesome. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you actually a touching moment, which was that, because these don't happen often enough in the business, but he became a superstar the day of the MTV Awards. You remember that, right? Yes. So the MTV Awards was a big show back then. It was the biggest show on cable TV. And I was determined to get him on. And so MTV had said he was breaking, but he wasn't broken. And they had already booked Limp Biscuit, And they were like, we don't need another rap rock thing, right? And I said, all right. So me and Rock huddled. And we decided we would reach out. He would reach out to Run DMC, and I would reach out to Steven Tyler. And because anyway, he's the, you know, if you think about it, he's sort of the offspring of those two, you know, movements or whatever, sounds. So we put together this idea that he would perform with Run DMC and Run DMC and Aerosmith. And then I called MTV and I said, uh, you can have your Limp Biscuit if you want, or you can have Run DMC, Aerosmith, and Kid Rock. And they said, yeah, we'll take, uh, we'll take door number two. <laughs> and so it's funny because that's the day he became a superstar. And it's interesting when you watch it back and you see them. If I remember right, it, yeah, I think Fred has a very unhappy face on as, as Aerosmith comes walk, marching down the aisle. Stephen and, and Joe come marching down the aisle, um, you know, because they kicked in the doors, right? It started with, right. it started with Ba with the Ba. And then it went into Run DMC, and then and then Steven and Joe kicked in the doors playing Walk This Way, and they performed Walk This Way with Kid Rock. And that's the night he became a superstar. So the touching part of the story is we had a party for him that night in some basement of some place downtown. And a lot of the bands came. I think Korn came and different people came. And it was pretty – it was a good party. It was a good record company party. And about close to 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I'm married. There's no upside in me staying here any longer, right? So I go up to Kid Rock, 
And I said, uh, listen, you know, congratulations. Um, you know, just awesome job tonight. You know, the usual thing, right? And I walk away, we hug, and I walk away, and he goes, hey, Flom. And I turn around, and he goes, uh, listen, uh, I know it's been a long night, and uh, I don't mean to bring this up at a time like this. He goes, but um, thank you. And I was like, I think I'm going to remember that for a long time. And I did, and I do, because it doesn't last. You know, like it's That always... was my next question. With all this talent, it tends to come to an end. So what do we learn about talent? Well, I mean... You know, there's that great book that John Seabrook wrote, right, about the um, – what's it called? The uh, song – The song machine. The song machine, yeah. It talks about, about – more about songwriters. Right. But it's always fascinated me that artists have a shelf life. Um, actors don't. You know, a lot of actors can act until they're – and even stay popular until they're in their, you know, late, late – you know, later years. Um, but they have a peak period of creativity and it burns so hot that maybe it just burns out. And, you know, they could still perform live. Like, the, the you know, Paul well, McCartney is still a great live I have a performer. whole theory about that. In order to be successful artist, you have to be fucked up. And you have a fantasy that if you're successful, it will solve your issues. And then when you become successful and you partake of all the goodies and you realize you're still the same fucked up guy, you lose the motivation. You can't do it anymore. But not all of them are fucked up. All of them are fucked up. Come on. They need, they have a hole inside them that has to be filled by external validation. And they can never really be filled. But there's a few, and you can name a few, that never went off the rails seemingly, right? Never never went crazy. No, no, but I'm not trying to say they necessarily do drugs or, you know, are on the verge of death. They just lose that incredible drive. Yeah, that's listen. That's legit. But they, they, but, but, the, but that loss only manifests itself in one way, which is their seeming inability to be able to make great records. Anymore, exactly. Right? They can still perform. Right. But I was more interested in as being the business guy, whether you're the manager, or the A and R guy, or the label. There comes a point where you're God, and then all of a sudden the talent turns against you, and you're shit. I'm sure you've – I know you've had that happen a number of times in your career. Oh, yeah. What, what, what's, what's your insight on that? Forget their, forget their artistic abilities. But you have a personal relationship. You live and die in the trenches and then you're persona non grata. So the people I most admired in the music business, Ahmed Erdogan, David Geffen, Doug, those are the three that come to mind. They all told me the same thing. They said they're all going to turn on you. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I mean, I don't want to believe that. I can't believe that. And this was at the time, too. I remember when Kid Rock would sometimes introduce me as, hey, this is my dad. I mean, he was half joking, but we had that type of relationship. We talked all the time. We did everything together. We plotted and schemed and did, you know, we created this thing from a whole cloth, right? And it was his music, don't get me wrong. And it's always about the talent because there's nothing any of us can do without the talent. But we did a lot together. And... um you know, we were really close personally. And, uh, you know, but they all gave me these amazing stories. I mean, the Ahmed Bobby Darren story comes to mind, you know, or any of them where it's just so, it's so weird. Like, well, I don't know the Ahmed Bobby Darren story. So Ahmed told me that he, uh, I think he discovered Bobby Darren in the lobby. Like they had a little, like a little office above Patsy's restaurant back then. And Bobby used to just show up and sit and wait around hoping to get an audience with Herb Abramson, I think it was. And Ahmed found him one day and said, hey, kid, can you play the piano? And he played the piano. And Ahmed ended up writing some of those records. I think he maybe even written 
um, I don't know if he wrote Splish Splash, but he wrote some of the great Bobby Darren records, and he mentored him. And Bobby gave a speech at the Grammys and called him and said, you know, said on stage. Apparently, I haven't seen the speech, but I'm told me that it said the most moving things about him and everything else. And he goes on and becomes a big star and marries uh, what was her name, Lara Fabian or something, right? And um, the movie star at the time. And Ahmed says one day he gets called to uh, L.A. and goes to see him. And uh, Bobby's got these two managers who Ahmed described as having these, like, nice manicures, these fancy suits. And they're driving around L.A. in this nice car. And they were driving past the Capitol Tower, he said. And the manager said to Bobby, in front of Ahmed, can you imagine if you were with a real record company like that, how big you would be? I mean, you would be the biggest star in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And Bobby bit and left him, turned on him and, you know, Forgot all about everything he had done, and, and his, his career, you know, tanked and whatever. But it didn't have to tank, but it did. But it's a shame. I mean, I've learned not to take it personally anyway because I now realize that for the most part it's true. And it may have something to do with the other theory of yours. I don't know. Um, the, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't lose sleep over it anymore. Like, for what? You know, like, I'm, I'm happy for their success. Um, I hope they're happy for mine. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very fucking lucky to be able to play a part in this amazing thing called the music business and to be able to make a living doing what I love. So what the fuck? Okay, jumping about, you know, you're at Lava, they cash you out. Uh, you have a lot of money. Then you become head of uh, a Virgin. Tell the story of Katy Perry and 30 Seconds to Mars. So, yeah, uh after a few a number of other hits at Lava, Simple Plan, Trans Siberian Orchestra obviously became a big thing. The Uncle Cracker, um, et cetera. There was others. Um, <clears throat> the Coors, right? Huge act. Um, I mean, we sold almost 100 million records in eight years from a standing start. It was really fun. And anyway, they bought me out and they made me the chairman of Atlantic, which was an amazing experience. It was short lived because, of course, you know, everyone knows Leo and I didn't get along, and it is what it is. I got fired over a poem I wrote. I don't know if you remember that, but it's true. And then um, <clears throat> roses are reddish, violets are bluish. Our stock's in the toilet, but at least we're both Jewish. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that wasn't uh, that didn't work out so well. But anyway, um, but it was funny. So uh, I got hired to run Virgin, and it was so fun, so much fun, because Virgin had been so cold for so long. The culture was fucked. Everything was fucked. And, uh, you know, it was great because the day that the I'd signed my contract, but nobody knew it yet. And I was sitting in my den, uh, and I had this idea. At the time, the hottest movie in the country was a 40-year-old virgin, so I decided I would take a picture as him and use that as my announcement. So I ran the ad, Jason Flom is the 44-year-old virgin. And it was lucky I was 44 because 44 is a funny number. Right. right? 45, not funny. Right. 43, not funny. 42, definitely not funny. 44, funny. So that really set the tone for the new company that I wanted to build. I hired great people. I hired Jeff Kempler, um, who was my COO. I hired Lee Trink to be president. I hired Angelica Cobb back uh, from uh, the old days, who was now uh, at Columbia. Angelica, um, it was funny because actually the, the, the first, this is a story that's not well known, but uh, the day after I got my job, it was a Tuesday, I called a guy named Steve Tramposh, and I said, uh, he was a guy who used to follow me around at clubs with a stack of research. He was a uh, research, just so laser-focused, but I'd never had anything for him to do. So I called him up. I thought maybe he wants to be a research guy. So he comes in, 
And uh, I said, what have you been up to? He says, I've been managing a band. I go, no kidding, what band? He says, a band called Red Jumpsuit Apparatus. I said, oh, let me hear. So he puts it on, and he's playing that song face down. And halfway through it, I said, I'm signing that. And he says, you can't. I said, why not? He because you can't. He says, because we're signing a record deal with Capitol tomorrow. I go, tomorrow? What do you mean tomorrow? He goes, tomorrow. I said, fuck tomorrow. What are you talking about? He says, no, we have execution copies. I said, get the band on the phone. We got the band on the phone. I said, I'm flying these guys up to New York tomorrow. I got, I think it was uh, Kevin from the Warp Tour. Did it. So somebody, somebody at the Warp Tour, I think it was, might have been Kevin. But anyway, I don't want to misspeak. But I got him to call up and say, listen, if you'll, uh, if you'll sign with Flom, it'll really increase your chances of getting on the tour. And the Warp Tour was the thing to be right. on those days. right? And I really I lined it up. And they flew up the next day. I took them to dinner. And we literally, because it was a sister company of ours, we got the document that from internally. We got it sent. We scratched out the name Capital, wrote in Virgin, and they signed the deal. And it was funny because I got a call the next day from my boss was uh, Alon Levy was the head of the whole thing. My immediate boss was David Munns, who worked for Alon. And Alon calls me. He goes, what the fuck did you do? <laughs> I go, what did I do? I signed a band. He goes, no, Andy's, Andy's going crazy. The, Andy was the head of cap, Capital. He goes, you're going crazy. He says, what are you, you stole the band. I said, look, I'm sorry. I, I said, I, I, I'm sorry. I thought you wanted me to come in. I thought you wanted me to win. Like, I thought you want me to turn this dump around. I said, if you want me to come in second on stuff, you better tell me now. I said, I didn't mean to steal the band from him, but he had it and I wanted it. And if my grandmother would have had it, I would have stolen it from her. You know, what am I going to do? So anyway, and they had a platinum record out of the box. It blew up. So that was a great way to start. And then, um, you know, then Angelica calls me one day or says to me, you know, you should meet this girl, Katy Perry. I said, who's Katy Perry? She said, she's assigned to Columbia. I think they're going to drop her. I think she's the star. So I met Katy at the Polo Lounge. And she walked in and sat down and I went, this girl's a star. Like, this is no question about it. And as soon as I started talking to her, I like the story matches, everything. Like, she's got the background, the thing, and I couldn't wait to hear the music. I heard the music. I loved it. And ultimately signed her um, and, uh, you know, sort of serendipitously, you know, she showed up at – I invited her to our Grammy party because this was – we just signed her at the beginning of the year. And I invited her to the, the Grammy party, and she walked in with Dr. Luke. So I was like, oh, my God, you guys know each other? Oh, yeah, we're friends. I said, well, you're going to work together. And I had known Luke because I gave him his first break in the business when he was a guitar player at Saturday Night Live. I actually signed him to a record deal. Um, and I thought, this is going to be great. And I really forced that um, collaboration to happen because there was some resistance <clears throat> from people. Um, but it was uh, – and, of course, Luke's always driven a hard bargain. But we made it happen, and, of course, that became – really a linchpin in her, well, the linchpin in her right. success. And so well, that combination was just magical. I, I couldn't have known that. And then, of course, I Kissed a Girl came out and just became this monster. And it's funny because I've had two hits with songs called I Kissed a Girl, I know, right? it's amazing. Because Jill Sobule, who I signed, was the first artist I signed at Lava the first time um, when it was with Atlantic, had a song called I Kissed a Girl with Fabio in the video. And it, was a, it wasn't a hit like this, but it was a hit. So, and then uh, 30 Seconds to Mars. So here's the funny thing. So when you take over a new record company, um, I hadn't had this experience before, but because when I came into Atlantic, I was already at Atlantic. Um, but uh, so I get, I get the job at Virgin, and I, a box of CDs arrives at my house. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, how are you supposed to digest that much music and make any sort of informed decision about what to do with these different artists? So you talk to people, you ask, you listen, you schmooze, whatever. And everyone's like, this 30 seconds of Mars, you got to get rid of it. It's a vanity project for an actor. Uh, it's just another dog star or whatever the hell it is. And they had an album that flopped and the new album isn't doing anything. And I was like, well, I guess I should probably drop it. But they happened to be on tour with Audio Slave, And they were playing at Madison Square Garden. So I said I should go. So I went. And the show was incredible. 
And I went to dinner with them afterwards, and I was sitting with Jared, and he told me that he had just turned down a starring or co-starring role in a new Clint Eastwood movie. And I was like, what? I go, we'll come again? And he goes, yeah. I said, why would you do that? He goes, because I, I had to. He says, I, I got a call from Clint, and he says, you know, uh, kid, what are you doing? And I said, I can't do it. I'm on tour with my band. And they were playing clubs back then. I mean, they got the auto slate tour, but mostly they were playing little clubs. And, um, you know, he, uh, it, it wasn't well received by Mr. Eastwood. Um, and I said, that's the most rock and roll thing I've heard in a long time. I'm going to make you a star. I'm going to break your band. And so I gave them money to make a video. And uh, I called MTV. They made the video. I called, no, I called MTV as they were making the video, and I said, I'm going to make a video with 30 Seconds to Mars, and you guys are going to play it in a rotation that I deem appropriate, or I'm going to stage a hunger strike in your lobby. <laughs> I said, I'm going to bring an espresso machine because I can't live without caffeine, but I'm going to sit there cross-legged until you play it the way you're supposed to. And the good news was he made that remarkable video for The Kill. Right. Where he sort of, you know, took the plot line from The Shining. And, you know, everything he does is remarkable. It just doesn't even make any sense. He's one of those people like Jamie Foxx, who, like, everything they do is fucking perfect and it's almost unbelievable. And so, uh, so yeah, we ended up breaking the band and um, having really a great run with them. Okay. So, Virgin, your job ends as a long business thing having nothing to do with you. And you start over with Universal and you sign Lord. Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, so I left there. They breached my contract, um, and I left. And, um, you know, I partnered up with Monty and Avery because I had had a friendly the rivalry. Lipnams. Yeah, I'd, I'd had a friendly rivalry with them over the years. Monty and I used to speak four times a year, and we would compare notes. Every time I was breaking something, it seemed like he was breaking something and vice versa. I remember Monty was a promotion guy for Daniel Glass at SBK. So I thought, listen, I'm always breaking something, and they're always breaking something. Let's get together and break something. So we did, and we always had a mutual respect. And so, um, you know, not too long after I got there, well, Jesse J came first, of course, but, um, and it hasn't all been, you know, wine and roses. We're obviously talking about the good parts of my career, but there have been a lot of frustrating and uh, things and setbacks and et cetera. But um, a woman named uh, Natalia Romashevsky, who was a, she worked at a, at a jingle uh, place. She was like a music supervisor or something like that. And she and I had been friends. And she would send me music time to time. And she sent me an email, which I now have framed and autographed and dedicated by Lord. And the email, the subject line was hot shit. And then it just said, unsigned New Zealand female, listen. And it had a SoundCloud link. And on the bottom she wrote, not sure if this is your type of thing, but I thought you should check it out. So I put this fucking thing on, Bob. And it was Royals and, you know, uh, I think Love Club and... And I called her up and I go, what the fuck did I just listen to? And she goes, I don't know. She said, somebody just sent it to me. I thought I'd send it to you. I said, how do we find her? So found her address on Facebook. I emailed uh, Lord, and she wrote me back. And next thing I know, I'm on the phone with her parents. And I think she may have been on the call and her manager. And I said, you know, I think your daughter's going to win Grammys. And, um, you know, we did the deal and... I got there just in time. You know, she had 200 SoundCloud plays when I now, found Now, didn't her. you fly to New Zealand, though? A little while after that, yeah. Okay. I went to her first gig. I think it was her first gig she had ever done with original material. And it was awesome, by the way. There was 70 people there, but she so, was Lord. So the deal was made before you flew to New Zealand. Yeah, the deal was made. And it was funny, too, because when I was in New Zealand, I got an email from Sean Parker, who I have a long history with. 
And Sean emailed Lucian Grange and copied me. And he said, hey, I, you know, I just came across this girl, Lord. I think you guys should check it out. And I wrote him back and said, she's sitting right next to me at a cafe in Auckland right now. It was a great moment. You know? Right. So, um, so yeah, but she was, she was like, I, I think she sprang from the womb, like fully formed, because she was on stage confident, um, you know, just doing her thing. And, of course, those songs. Like, you know, they say there's three things that children can become geniuses at, which is music, math, and chess. And, you know, she created a work of absolute genius when she was 14 years old. I mean, it's just... It it, it always amazed me about her because it's like... If she's a young teenager in New Zealand, there's at least an argument that says she really couldn't have experienced hardly anything, but yet it seemed like she knew everything. Right, right. And exactly. The, the explanation is that she read a thousand books by the time she was 12. But still, it's it's just a remarkable piece of work. And then weren't her parents reluctant? They wanted her to stay in school? Yeah. Uh, one of them was and uh, was was in favor of her becoming a lawyer. And I said, you know what? I come from a family of lawyers and- I promise you there's enough lawyers and, <laughs> and your daughter has a real chance to win Grammys. And of course, um, you know, Joel Little did that beautiful, beautiful album. And um, and I remember when she called me up and told me the title of it was going to be Pure Heroin. And I almost I almost fell down. I mean, it is it is so that title is batshit fucking crazy. I mean, it's so good. Right. And the black cover and the white. Right. It's perfect. It's like some Ziggy Stardust type of perfection, and I don't want to compare it to David Bowie because whatever. But I mean, you know, and he's not even here anymore. But that was one of my favorite albums of all time because it was perfect. But this out al- that album is perfect, and even the title is per- "Pure Heroin" with an E on the end, and Lord has an E on the end. Get the fuck out of here! Where did that? What depths of your soul did that spring from? Because it's amazing. Okay, so you sent me a video where you actually spoke. In Canada, at a large convention center, 6,000 people. And in the speech you gave, you talked about being depressed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I went through a, uh, you know, I was, first of all, it was such a thrill to open for Tony Robbins in Canada. That's the speech that I sent you. And um, I'm hoping to do more with more work with him because he's a force of nature. But that's beside the point. Um, so I spoke uh, about the fact that about seven or eight years ago, I hit a low point when uh, a lot of things sort of happened at once. And um, and it spiraled me into a state of depression. And, and those things, I mean, both of my parents died relatively close to each other. I'd recently been separated. You know, I was missing my kids and my dogs and my life. And I had a terrible professional experience, uh, the worst one I'd ever had. Uh, I had fallen in love and then had my heart broken. You remember that nonsense. Of course. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and then I was angry at myself for being depressed because, you know, I work at the Innocence Project, right? And I deal with people every day who've had, you know, spent decades in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And then I'm sitting there going, How, what right do I have to feel this way? And so I was just really in a very low place, you know, and I, I wasn't sure I was ever going to get out of it. And so how did you get out of it? You know, I had this feeling at the time, Bob, that I said this on stage, that, that everything good that had ever happened to me was everything good that was ever going to happen to me. The, the, there were going to be no more hit records. There were going to be no more women that were going to be attracted to me. There was going to be no more love in my life, everything. So I was in L.A., and uh, two things happened. One was a friend of mine named Hannah. Uh, Schmeider, she says to me, boy, you're a fucking mess. And I said, yeah, I'm a fucking mess. I was here for the Grammys. And she said, you got to go see Jessica. I go, who's Jessica? She said, she's an intuitive. I said, I don't know what that is, but I'm going. And uh, 
I went to see this uh, this woman named Jessica Rannick, uh, and she, R-A-N-E-K, and she turned my whole shit around. I mean, like, in one session, she told me why I was feeling the way I was well, feeling. What did you learn in that session? Well, she told me why I was feeling the way I was feeling, what had happened, and what to do about it. And, and just very quickly, what well, what did she say to do? Why were you feeling that way? Well, she was the first one that explained to me, and I had wasted a lot of time going to shrinks, you know, ever since my marriage had fallen apart, um, or even before that, ever since I knew it was falling apart. And um, had really hadn't made any progress. And uh, she was the first one that explained to me that the reason I was feeling what I was feeling had a lot to do with the fact that I got no love from my mother, you know, which is, again, what well, was me, whatever. People have real problems, right? But still, that was the first time anyone had made that connection. It really, it, it, it just clicked something off in my brain. She also said to me. Just, just to be clear, did your mother acknowledge your success? Yeah, in letters. She could write letters. And she was a, she was a great letter writer, but she couldn't say it. So um, it, was a, it was a weird thing. Okay, um, so the second thing she said. So she, I'll never forget she says to me, um, I was, I was uh, you know, moaning about this lost love, which I thought it was, which was actually a dysfunctional mess. And um, I said, you know, I don't think I'm not charming enough. I'm not attractive enough. I don't think anyone And she goes, how about if I make a list of five million beautiful women that would drop what they're doing right now to marry your sorry fucking ass? And I was like... Because she curses like that. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah. I was like, huh. I don't know. But it actually sort of like, I was like, wow, if she believes it, maybe I should believe it too. No shrink is ever going to talk to you like that. So it was a combination of things she said and, and, and things she did and just the way she spoke to me and the way she cut through the bullshit, you know, and she did. And then, um, and it's, it's funny because she's actually here in the studio with us today. But anyway, it's a coincidence. It's not like we follow each other around all day. Uh, but but we've, we've remained close over the years and I've sent so many people, I'm sure some of the people listening to this podcast have been to see her because I've sent so many people to see her over the years with remarkable results. Um, and another thing happened at the same time too, which is that I think it was Don Passman told me to call Rabbi Mark. So I went to see Rabbi Mark. Who is Rabbi Mark? He's a life coach. And out is, here. is he actually a rabbi? Yeah. Okay. But he's had a crazy life story. Right. He was in jail and he's had hits taken out on him by loan sharks and all sorts of crazy things. We did a walk and talk for an hour. And he's counseled some legendary people in the music industry. And he, uh, we did a walk and talk for an hour. And he says to me, uh, I mean, here's what you're going to do. He says, um, go home, look in the mirror, and say the following words out loud. I'm important and I matter. And then start acting like it. He says, because you're not. He goes, you're letting everybody and everything push you around, and that's not who you are. And, and start, you know, start behaving in a way like you matter. And I, and I did. It, it helped. You know, it all helped. And I, like I said to you earlier when we were talking, when I went to see Jessica, I walked in feeling like a zero, and I didn't come out feeling like a hero, but I felt I came out feeling like a seven. And then the, my energy really changed, and things started really clicking. Okay, you've had this peripatetic, incredibly successful career in the music business. In the 30 or 40 years you have left, personally, what would you like to achieve um, well, you know, as you know, my overriding passion, obsession, whatever, for the last 25 years has been reforming the criminal justice system, eliminating mandatory sentencing, decriminalizing weed, and most importantly, getting people out of prison that don't belong there. I mean, that's really, and, and that has, you know, been, I mean, I've been at the Innocence Project, I'm a founding board member of the Innocence Project, and I've been working on that. Just for, for people who may be out of the loop, explain what the Innocence Project is. So the Innocence Project is an organization that utilizes DNA to prove innocence in cases in which people have been convicted of uh, heinous, violent crimes. 
Um, it doesn't always prove innocence, by the way. Sometimes it proves guilt. But we're able to re-examine cases. Uh, and we know now that the incidence of wrongful convictions in this country are astoundingly high. There have been so many executions of people who are innocent. And um, and it, it just it touches me in a way. I mean, I've always been a very empathetic person. I've always wanted to help the helpless, um, whether that's a person, an animal, or whatever. And I could never think of anything worse than being locked up in our gulag system in these violent, dark, terrible places, uh, these prisons that we have here for something you didn't do. And so, um, so it's been my mission to help get these people out that are actually innocent and then to help them once they do get out because it's the second punishment when you get out and you have, you know, you've missed 20 years, right? What do you do? How's your resume looking? What, how do you use a phone? How do you don't even know what an ATM card is? How do you get a license? Like it's a, it's a, you know, it's a really, it's an unbelievable thing for people to go through, and it happens, like I said, way too often. So, so that's been my, uh, that's been my thing, and that's what I want to, and that's what I'm, that's not what I want to do, is what I'm going to keep doing until okay. my last breath. Okay, so that is very soul fulfilling, not incredibly lucrative at this point in time business making money business status how important to you yeah it's it's not lucrative at all it's actually the opposite uh, of course that's fine i mean it doesn't matter um no i'm i'm really it's funny uh you know ron burkle uh who's the legendary um supermarket supermarket king but entrepreneur in general Absolutely. i mean it's unbelievable Financier. 100 100 companies he owns or something it's, it's, it's i had breakfast one this morning but ron uh ron said something interesting to me i reminded him of this today he said to me you know guys like you successful guys typically after they get divorced take about 3 years to make back all the money they gave away in the divorce and now it's funny cuz i see what he was talking about i mean i am in I'm in such heavy work mode and I'm feeling more creative and inspired than I have in memory. And I'm much more interested in that than doing, you know, well, I'm, I want to build businesses. I want to continue to work in the music industry. Of course, I'm having this wonderful success with Greta Van Fleet right now, which is just the most fun. And, um, and you know, I want to create new things and I want to make a lot of fucking money so I can give it away. Okay, so at this point in time, how much of your day is filled with philanthropy and how much time with business? I spend a lot of time on philanthropy. I have no idea what the percentage is, but it's a lot. And um, But it actually, you know, it's good too. I mean, artists are attracted to me sometimes because of the fact that they know about me from that work, you know. So it, it really works together. Um, and, you know, of course, I launched my podcast, uh, I don't know, whatever it was, four seasons ago, a year, a year and a half ago. And that's been, you know, a, a real joy for me. And Why don't you tell the audience exactly what the podcast is? So I have a podcast called Wrongful Conviction. Um, and on the podcast, I interview each week a man or woman who was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to decades or life in prison or even sentenced to death and ultimately exonerated and proven actually innocent. And, you know, some of them served 30 or more years in prison for something they did not do. And, uh, again, some of them were sentenced to death. And sometimes I go inside prisons as well, inside maximum security prisons, to interview people who I have evidence are innocent but for whom the justice system is not working. And so 
to help bring attention to their cases. We recently had one of our people that was on the show exonerated um, in Kansas City after 23 years, which was such a wonderful feeling. He called me from the courthouse steps. So, you know, it's an incredibly rewarding process. The things you pick up from the people themselves who are so graceful and so kind and so optimistic and they lack bitterness and I don't understand it. I've asked every one of them and I've heard them all explain it in different ways. But, you know, it's amazing because it puts so much gratitude in my attitude. I mean, the idea that I'm able to help them. And it's funny, Bob, because now it's like when you walked in today, I was on the phone with a guy who's in a maximum security prison in Virginia whose case I've been working on for a year and it's going to be featured on 2020. You know, my phone rings a lot with calls like that. And I was recently, um, you know, very, very lucky to get um, clemency for three people actually last week who were serving life in prison through just hard work and connecting the dots. And that's outside of the Innocence Project because I take on cases on my own sometimes too. Um, obviously, there's only so much a person, one person can do. But I heard about a case in this particular situation, not a guy who was innocent, but a guy named Travion Blount who had been sentenced to six life terms plus 118 years in prison. He was 15 years old, and he participated in a robbery. No one was shot. One person got hit, but they weren't seriously hurt, and not by him. And it was a robbery of a party. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have participated. He did carry a gun. He didn't have any prior arrests, though. And he was 15 fucking years old. And this has gotten national news because it's so outrageous that it's just unbelievable. And so um, he was one of the people who I was able to help um, convince the powers that be should be freed. And he was granted clemency last week. So if we could do two things in America or the criminal justice system to move things in the direction uh, that you're mentioning where innocent people are not incarcerated, what would those be? That's a great question. I mean, there are so many problems. I think we need one of the first changes we need is mandatory videotaping of interrogations um, because there's so many false confessions. And it's important for people who are listening to know that when you go on a jury, uh, you need to have a more informed and educated and skeptical view. Uh, I'm not a person who doesn't believe in the justice system. I'm, I, I always say I'm not soft on crime. I'm tough on injustice. Um, I'm not an anarchist by any means. But you need to know that just because somebody confessed or just because a police officer is saying this or just because a prosecutor is saying this or just because a quote-unquote expert is saying X, Y, or Z doesn't mean it's true. And you have an obligation to be there for your fellow human being and really dive into it and make an informed decision. Whether it's guilty or innocent, you better try your best to get it right. And I think a lot of people, like I used to, have a view that if an authority figures up there saying something, it must be true. And if somebody confessed, it must be that they're guilty. But how the fuck do we not videotape interrogations? How do you? Because what happens is, Bob, and there are only there are twenty five states now that have mandatory videotaping interrogations. But there are twenty five that don't, and only one. Has, just for just for my edification, does it uh, break down on red and blue uh, states? I, I don't know. No, I don't think so. Because New York only recently passed it. Um, it didn't have it for all these years. I mean, so, and, and you know what happens is they, they'll go, you go in that little room and I had a detective, on, a retired NYTV detective on my show, NYPD detective on my show recently, who said, if I got you in that room, you weren't leaving until you confessed. And I was like, and then, you know, they can lie. First of all, if anyone's listening, if you get arrested, you know what you should say? Nothing. You should say, I want a lawyer and stop talking. Because 
Once they get you in that room, they can lie all they want. They go, Bob, listen, man, we got your fingerprints on the murder weapon. We have a videotape of you at the place. We got your co-conspirator in the other room saying you did it. You better come clean, man, because it's the best way out for you. You know, you're going to get, we're going to be nice to you if you confess. And there's so many cases, people have been on my show who've been beaten in those rooms. And then they bring you out of the room. They have a whole protocol called the Reed Method that is designed, it's a, it's a psychological technique that's designed to elicit confessions, whether the person's guilty or innocent. And it works. And sometimes violence, actual violence is employed. Sometimes it's psychological violence. But either way, you get so trapped in that room that you see no way out other than to tell them what they want to hear. And many of these people, like uh, Johnny Hincape, who was on my show, who was convicted of that notorious murder in New York State where the tourists were there going to the U.S. Open and a gang of kids got on the subway to rob them and the mother was being pushed around and the son came to her aid and was stabbed to death. Johnny was convicted of that murder even though they, they knew he wasn't there. And he was tortured in the police station. Um, he, was, he was beaten. He had hair pulled out of his head. And at one point, the cop, who was a notorious cop, who was also involved in the Central Park Five case, uh, said to him, um, we're going to kill you and dump your body in the alley. And no one's going to know about it unless you sign this piece of paper. So he says, you know, people say to me, why would I confess? I say, why wouldn't I confess? I've seen what they're capable of, right? And he was a guy who's 18 years old and had never been in trouble, a dancer, a DJ. Imagine yourself in that situation. So mandatory videotaping interrogation. And I think that we must have prosecutorial accountability. But there's a story about an exoneree named Robert Jones who's been on my podcast who served 23 years in prison. And he, not only did they know he was innocent, but in his case, it was a crime spree that continued after he was arrested with exactly the same MO, which led to a very violent crime spree, which led to the homicide detective who had originally arrested him going to the prosecutor as he was being held in jail and saying, listen, man, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I've never said this before, but I arrested the wrong guy. It's not him. And the prosecutor said, I don't care. And so this guy was, uh, it took four years for him to get to trial. He was held in jail for four years, and they framed him so egregiously. And now he has filed suit today against the New Orleans prosecutor's office for uh, they've, he's show, he's able to show 45 individual cases, including his own, of prosecutorial misconduct, of withholding exculpatory evidence, of lying, of, of cheating, of gaming the system, of doing such egregious things that led to innocent people, many of whom were sentenced to death, you know, like – so, yeah, I mean, and, I, and it could, we could go on with this all day, but I mean, we got to, we have to abolish the death penalty. I mean, here in California, they just passed that horrendous death penalty speed up referendum. Like, what speed, what the fuck are you talking, don't speed it up. Well, you know, I just remember, you know, I come from a background where, you know, what is the real truth? I remember Richard Jewell at the uh, 96 Atlanta Olympics. I was convinced that guy was guilty. He wasn't. So there are plenty of people who are really not guilty in conventional wisdom, but our society has turned at large. I mean, I'm a child of the 60s, love, peace, and happiness, wherein now it's I've got mine, screw you. So ultimately going – but moving from this very important work back to the business sphere, in your 35-odd-year career, what are the changes that you've seen in entertainment, i.e. music, that – I don't mean like a delineation of what literally happened. We all know about MTV and Napster. But in terms of what music means to society, where the acts come from, where it all leads, how do you assess today as opposed to earlier in your career? Well, I'm hoping that music will, um, you know, take a turn 
towards the activism side, um, which is obviously such a big part of my life, and that people will, uh, artists will start creating, um, you know, the modern day equivalent of Ohio or Masters of War or some of the great protest songs. And there have been some, mostly for now it's coming from the hip hop side, but I think rock is going to make a comeback. And I'm excited. I'm excited. Oh, so tell me why. You have Greta Van Fleet, which is the most successful rock band of the last 12 months. But they made it to number one active rock, but it hasn't permeated the culture at large. What do you think is going on there? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I think, I think you, I have to disagree with you there. I think it's definitely permeating the culture at large. I have every day, including on the way over here, I had somebody tell me that they're, they're 15, 16-year-old kids who don't listen to anything like this are jamming out to Greta Van Fleet. It's, it's you know, it's gone viral, and we're just scratching the surface now, but it's been at the top of the iTunes charts forever. The streaming numbers are catching up. The ticket sales are insane. So like, what does it take to make it as big as a hip-hop track? Oh, I think that they're going to, you know, they're going to write. They've already written at least one song that I think is going to really catch the, the you know, the, a very different segment of the audience and propel them to much greater heights. I think it's all happening the way it's supposed to, you know, like it shouldn't, they shouldn't be overnight successes, but they are actually, if you think about it, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great slow build that's going to get to a place where they're going to be headlining arenas in 12 to 18 months. And, and the record sales will catch up accordingly. So you believe we're poised for a rock comeback? We're poised for a rock comeback. You know, I've recently established a movement called the Church of Rock and Roll, which I'm very excited about. And it's a lifestyle brand uh, wrapped up in a movement, which stands for all the things I believe in. You know, our first commandment is be kind to yourself, to other people, to animals and the earth. Um, and that's um, and it flows outward from there. It's all about personal freedom and expression and um, and being, you know, being the best version of you and, and helping other people, right? Um, it's the opposite of objectivism, so to speak. And um, and I uh, and, and it feels like this is going to be. I mean, this is this is to me my next and my really my biggest act because I believe this is going to become transformative. And um, and I'm really excited. I'm, I'm I'm talking to some of the most amazing people in the world, some of the top business people with expertise that I couldn't begin to uh, approach. Who are all excited about building building this into a, you know, I want, I want it to be the counterculture Margaritaville, you know, that's my idea. And I'm not going to get into all the details now, but you're going to see it emerging and it's really exciting and fun. Jason, you've been wonderful. We've only scratched the surface. Thanks so much for appearing. Thank you. And please don't forget to follow me on Instagram at it's Jason Flom, because that's where I post my best stuff. And also, how do they find your podcast? The podcast is Wrongful Conviction. It's available everywhere. Uh, iTunes, uh, Pandora, Spotify. Um, it's available on um, every, everywhere. every also, platform. Tune in. Yes. Thanks so much, Jason. Until next time, it's Bob Lefset. We've had a wonderful time here with Jason Flom. Thanks, Bob. Bob here. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. If you heard something in this episode or a previous episode that piqued your interest, go ahead and email your comments to me at bob at leftsets.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the stories we covered, and there's sure to be more exciting ones to come. Tune in next week for more edification and information. Till next time, it's Bob Leftsets.